I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no idea what's actually true. This is Encounter 703, The Silver Bridge. We've encountered Gray Barker before here on the show, and last week we took a sort of chronological view of the Mothman Point Pleasant events, and today we're going to dive into the Silver Bridge, Barker's 1970 account of those events. I say account, but the Silver Bridge is more than that, and to be honest, a bit less. Just a brief refresher on Barker, this is the bio featured on the back cover of the Silver Bridge. Gray Barker is one of the earliest and best-known writers about UFOs unidentified flying objects. In 1956, he wrote the best-selling book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. It revealed to the public, for the first time, how many investigators of the flying saucer phenomenon had been silenced simply because they knew too much. Barker's publishing firm, Saucerian Press, has printed many books on the UFO subject and other baffling mysteries. He has contributed articles to many popular magazines, including Fate, Amazing Stories, Fantastic Universe, and Ray Palmer's Flying Saucers. Barker also produces educational and documentary films and serves as a consultant for a large audiovisual media distributor. He also freelances in public relations for national and international companies based in the New York City metropolitan area. So, Saucerian Press, just a reminder, published a great deal of books about almost every aspect of the flying saucer topic during the 1950s and 60s and 70s, from Barker's own newsletter, magazine, Saucerian Saucer News, it went through a couple different name changes, to pamphlets and books by contactees that are so obscure that their only presence was a few convention appearances and a pamphlet published by Gray Barker. He would publish almost any saucer story and promote almost any saucer story. And this got him a reputation as well as a reputation from some hoaxes that he um, perpetrated or participated in, a, a, a reputation for being a bit of a... Um, less-than-reliable reporter on UFO subjects. But he was fun, so there's that. A skeptical writer and debunker of television shows like Ancient Aliens named Jason Calavito described Barker as, quote, a UFO skeptic who wrote, to be blunt, lies and hoaxes for cash, end quote. That Barker engaged in saucer-related hoaxing is undeniable, but his relationship to the truth and to truth and fallacy and the line between those things and between fact and fiction is more complex than he was a hoaxer. But flying saucer stuff is weird and doesn't always fit into the true-not-true true division, if that makes sense. And while he was certainly no orthodox UFO believer, neither was he a skeptic in the sense that Calavito likely means, in the, in the sense of a, a materialist-minded debunker. Rather, I think it's safe to say that Barker was, like many of us, fascinated by the personalities involved, interested in the phenomenon itself, and dedicated to making some money off of the whole thing, which 
come on, man. It's America. That's what we do. Alan Greenfield, a figure whose significance to the long history of saucerology needs to be told more fully down the road a ways, relates the following anecdote in his introduction to the 2008 reissue of The Silver Bridge. I met Gray in his middle period, after Flatwoods and Bender, but before the Mothman scare that led to the volume presently under consideration. One time we were having a dinner meeting in an Atlanta restaurant with Mosley and local fans. Someone brought up the question of what Barker really believes. I looked at Gray slyly. I think I know, I said, smiling. On one level, Gray is the staunchest believer in some of the most bizarre stuff in ufology. He's the champion of the weird, but... I continued, that isn't the real story. Under that is Gray the Cynic, who believes none of it, whose yarn spinning merrily away. Gray was poker-faced, but obviously interested. However, we're still not there, I said, looking him square in the eyes, because way deep down, Gray Barker believes all of it. The men in black, the space people, the saucers, the monsters, all of it. Gray was amused, I think, but he remained poker-faced. I believe, he said after a long pause, in everything and nothing. Flatwoods is, of course, a reference to the strange, monstrous visitations that occurred in West Virginia, and Bender, of course, Al Bender, was the source of the early Man in Black encounters, recounted by Barker, if you didn't know that. We covered Bender in Encounter 102 and Flatwoods in Encounter 103, so you can check those out on the website. Now, last time, We looked at the Mothman story sort of as it unfolded. The Silver Bridge is Barker's account of those events. He was on the ground in Point Pleasant and the surrounding area during that time. This is discussed in in Keel's contemporaneous letters and notes. Unfortunately, the last time I was at the Gray Barker Collection in Clarksburg, West Virginia, Point Pleasant was not foremost on my to-research list, and I had limited time, and so I didn't dig into Barker's correspondence files on Point Pleasant or the Mothman, sadly enough. Um, And since few of Barker's papers have made it online, at least compared to John Keel's, we don't have as clear a contemporary record of what was going on with Barker at the time as as we do for Keel. Silverbridge, however, was published in 1970, just a few years after the events happened, so it does have that going for it. But this isn't a journalist's account. This isn't a report of an investigation. We'll turn to Greenfield's 2008 introduction once more. Barker deftly captures the numinosity and sheer weirdness of those dreamlike events, examining what it must have been like to grow up in mist-shrouded hills where good and evil struggle for men's hearts and minds, and where so many things are off-limits to the ordinary. One gets a strong dose of conspiracy and grassroots folklore, laced with the sexual undertones of firebrand preachers painting verbal images of hell designed to haunt their parishioners in an eerily erotic way. Gray saw these paradoxes in the whole Mothman cycle and told me so. A careful reading of The Silver Bridge reveals a respect for the power of the psyche and hints at an essentially human key to the UFO mystery. Greenfield had also written an introduction to the original 1970 edition of the book in which he discussed the ambiguity of the fact-fiction divide a little more explicitly. We are dealing here, perhaps, in this book, in this work, not with prose alone, but with poetry as well. If so, it might be well not to judge it in the terms that one might employ in the assessment of conventional nonfiction, scientific nonfiction at that, but rather judge it in terms appropriate to its particular nature, possibly a hybrid, that is, strictly speaking, neither poetry nor prose. 
but something of both. I suspect that Gray Barker, the author of this work, in the format of a conventional book dealing with strange phenomena, has in fact written, how intentionally I do not know, something else again. We have here literal details, literal facts, which presumably to one extent or another could be checked for accuracy for their individual and or collective merit. The results of such a study could be compared with Mr. Barker's descriptions, the degree of consistency being used as the standard for judging the book. One could presumably do this, but I have serious doubt as to whether this would present the appropriate evaluation of the true worth or meaning of the book. It might well be akin to questioning the value of the fable of the fox and the crow on the grounds that it is unrealistic. So, to the book itself. Barker dedicates the book to the bird creature and includes a snippet from the 3rd century author Tertullian. Quote, When a thing is hidden away with so much pains, merely to reveal it is to destroy it. End quote. A pleasantly mysterious, somewhat sinister sentence to begin a pleasantly mysterious, somewhat sinister story. Barker begins his tale with some vignettes of the people involved, including Woodrow Derenberger, the contactee who met Indrid Cold, and jumps into the story um, sort of as it's happening, assuming some degree of familiarity on the part of the reader, perhaps. Things are not in the precise order in which they actually may have occurred in real life. In the first chapter, for example, expands on an episode recounted in fairly bland terms in the newspaper, as we heard last time. Quote, Raymond Walmsley, Mrs. Catherine Walmsley, and Mrs. Marcella Bennett visited the Ralph Thomas home Wednesday, a short distance from the TNT power plant where the creature is supposedly domiciled. Mrs. Bennett, carrying her baby in her arms, started to her car and was suddenly confronted with the bird of paradise. She screamed and, panic-stricken, dropped her baby and fell to the ground. So that was the newspaper account. You can hear it read much more sort of professionally on the last episode. Barker's recounting of this gives some indication of the, of the flourishes he's going to apply to various stories of the Mothman. And he begins with an extended discussion of Mrs. Ralph Thomas experiencing visions and, and the visions she experiences and then continues into the rest of the story. It began with black clouds billowing toward her. Out of the clouds came lightning and flame. Then the clouds parted, and a huge airplane, its jets screaming, plunged out of them into her view. It was a vast, unearthly plane, with many engines, all spouting fire and fumes. It poised high in the sky and then plunged toward her, and the noise of the jets seemed to mingle with the screams of many passengers. Mrs. Thomas felt this was a portent of a forthcoming plane crash, such as she had had experienced before the collision of two planes over the Grand Canyon some years previous. The plane became amorphous and changed shape. Now it was a huge, awesome bird that still plunged toward her with terrifying swiftness. Its wings flapped wildly, and the screams of the passengers changed to a wild and unearthly croaking. Its eyes, red and glaring, seemed to hold her in a hypnotic trance. They became larger and larger, with the blackness closing in around them. Those eyes had gripping power over you, she told her neighbors. I feared it was going to tear me to pieces. By Wednesday, November 16th, Mrs. Thomas had recovered from the initial shock of the vision, but was worried about the events which it must have portended. Mrs. Catherine Walmsley, along with Marcella Bennett, both Point Pleasant residents, had come to visit her, and that had cheered her up. Mrs. Bennett brought her new baby, 
and Mrs. Thomas saw it for the first time. As soon as the mother unwrapped her, the child confirmed Mrs. Thomas's reputation with children. The baby opened her little eyes and made a gurgling noise and tried to reach out and touch her large necklace, even though the child was only three months old. There, baby, baby, let me hold you, Mrs. Thomas offered, a warm glow permeating her as she took it from its mother. It burbled pleasantly again. She's been so cross lately, Mrs. Bennett told her. You work wonders with babies. I like her little pink dress, Mrs. Walmsley said. I think she's divine. A short distance from the Thomas home, the old abandoned TNT plant seemed to lurk like something vast and living, where the preceding night had been one of horror for the two young couples. Mrs. Thomas had felt that her vision had indeed been prophetic, but that instead of a plane crash, she had foreseen the advent of Mothman the great bird which would terrorize Point Pleasant. As the two women prepared to depart, she hoped her mind would not begin to dwell on the subject, for the tale the young couple had told disturbed her in a peculiar way. She felt that not only had her dream been prophetic, but that the creature portended something even more horrifying and tragic. Something will happen, something will happen, she told herself, even then, under her breath, as she walked with her friends to the door. As she hooked the night latch, she heard Mrs. Bennett scream. She reopened the door to witness a scene of wild confusion. Mrs. Bennett had dropped her baby and was picking it up, apparently examining it for injuries. It was crying. Mrs. Walmsley pointed fearfully to the sky. It had a body like a man, yet it was a bird, a terrible bird. I think it was the devil himself. Both fled back to the house. The baby had been wrapped heavily and apparently suffered no injuries, but the two adults were hysterical. They slowly gasped out the story. A huge bird-like creature with glowing red eyes had suddenly dropped like a heavy wet sack upon the sand of the yard. It made a flapping, gurgling sound as it righted itself and stood up. The red eyes had almost hypnotized them, holding their gaze for a few seconds before it suddenly shot up into the air like a rocket. Mrs. Thomas thought that she herself had caught a glimpse of the red eyes as she opened the door, but she could remember no huge bird. They had been the same red eyes of her vision. So that gives you a bit of an idea of how Barker described and probably embellished events. And while portions of the book are taken up by a fairly straightforward account of Barker's interviews with witnesses, his meeting John Keel, and their conversation with Woodrow Derenberger, other parts of the book are a bit different. And one example is the figure of the recorder. When the news about Mothman and the other happenings in the Ohio Valley reached the outside world... The recorder was sent in to sift the truth from the lie and to write all these things down on high-quality paper. The recorder arrived... The recorder arrived shortly after the first sightings. Sitting at the wheel of a large van which swayed and bumped and thumped over the crooked roads, he fancied himself to arrive in the city of Point Pleasant with great ceremony. In reality, nobody took notice of his coming, though in his mind's eye he pictured huge crowds greeting him, reporters and red carpets. When they really hear of me, they'll be impressed. When they see my multifarious electronic gear and my sophisticated cameras and my reels of tapes and films, they'll kneel at my feet. So what does the recorder do with these instruments? He records, of course. The instruments recorded the Mothman, the three men in black, and the fantastic flying saucers. It would all be taken down, all right. And then he reports. He turned on all of his equipment. 
From his television kit, he withdrew great idiot cards and hung them on oversized easels. Throwing away all pens and selecting a huge black marker from his chest, he filled the cards with large characters telling the story that was occurring below. Now he could see all things in the valley. He could penetrate the walls, see through the curtains and behind the masks. Suddenly he knew what was happening. He knew the secrets of everything and everybody. And he knew all the things the people of the valley were thinking. And they were good. At last he knew that they loved him. And that he loved them. And that he loved all mankind. And so it was that the greatest power of his experience came upon the recorder. And he became capable of recording all things. The recorder also has another ability. And he became capable of the gift of reorientation. So he took liberties with time and space. And he reassigned names. And he lifted people from one place and put them down into another. And the people below loved him more. And they applauded. So the figure of the recorder not only records and plays back or recounts stories of strange events, but also edits them to a degree, rearranges them. For a fuller explanation of this figure, we can turn to a July 19, 1980 letter from Barker to Robert Schieffer, a writer who had done more skeptical investigations of paranormal events and was a founding member of the UFO subcommittee for the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Uh, this organization was formerly and probably more commonly remembered and known as PSYCOP, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. I tried to clue my own role as that of the recorder, who also, I thought, could be a composite of UFO researchers in general. And this was a kind of excuse for blending actual events or reported events with deliberately fictional creations. So here we have Barker explaining that um, this book, The Silver Bridge, is a mixture of events and reported events and deliberately fictional creations. And some people would read that and triumphantly exclaim, it's a hoax, it's a hoax, he's lying for money. Isn't that basically the definition of anybody who has ever written anything fictional? Even historical fiction based upon real events and reports of those events are mixed with deliberately fictional creations because history and historical accounts don't necessarily give us all the ingredients of a good story. Um, that's why there's historical fiction. The Silver Bridge, in some ways, is a great example, probably the best example, of intentional UFO historical fiction. So, the Scarberry and Mallet couples, the original witnesses, don't make an appearance until about a fifth of the way into the book, an indication, perhaps, of Barker's or the recorders, to whatever degree they're separate entities, their cavalier attitude towards chronology, which, which as a history guy, kind of, you know, always... I don't know, my, my, my spider sense starts, starts to tingle. You know, these things aren't in order. But it's, it's, it's fun. I can, I can put that aside. The third chapter is a dramatic recounting of uh, the initial sighting by those couples and ends with, uh, with a coda that, that sort of takes place into the future. On December 15th, 1967, exactly one year and one month from the advent of Mothman, another kind of darkness would descend upon Point Pleasant. People would gather in little groups and murmur about what had occurred. We drive up there and it's barricaded. I wish we could get rid of it. And if we didn't have the barricade, people would drive up there and go into the river. We've got to build a new street or a memorial of some kind up there. 
And meanwhile, there would be boats, dozens of them, plying the muddy waters, searching, dragging for bodies. One woman's husband ran off, and he's no doubt over in Cleveland, Ohio, but she stands down there on the riverbank, hoping they'll drag him up. People are strange. She'd rather have a dead husband in her arms, all still and cold from the bottom of that river, rather than know that he was alive and embracing that bitch from Cleveland. By 1970, when the book came out, the collapse of the bridge was a massively known event. People buying this book knew how the story ended. So foreshadowing and playing around with the chronology is possible. And Barker here, in inventing conversations that people were hearing at the site of the tragedy, makes this a more emotional, personal story that isn't just about the Mothman. It's about this tragedy that hits this town and how individual people might respond to it. The recorder has many powers, and sort of peering into the imaginary minds of imaginary people in some way might be one of those powers. I've made the decision to focus on just a few interesting bits from The Silver Bridge, lest this turn into an audiobook. And one bit that illustrates Barker's approach and style is his recounting, more or less, of the um, encounter that Connie Jo Carpenter had with a, a man in black style being. As Mary Heyer wrote to John Keel, Quote, Connie had a man attack her as she was leaving her house for school, and he tried to get in her car and tore her blouse and scratched her, and they found a note on their porch saying, Remember, girl, I can still get you. In The Silver Bridge, Barker names her as Donna Kenmore and describes a scene that is much more detailed and graphic, extrapolating from the accounts he heard, probably from Mary Heyer herself, and expanding, quote, tore her blouse and scratched her into a more fully detailed attempted attempted rape. The aftermath, including the note that Donna slash Connie received, is expanded upon as well. Donna got over the experience itself much more quickly than she had anticipated, and reached a time where she did not, each week in church, thank God that she had not been physically harmed or abducted. But still, there was the subtle disquietude that it indeed might happen again, mainly because of the note written in an obviously disguised hand, placed under the front door of her house, and warning that I can have you any time I so desire. You cannot escape me. You did not hear me out. Was this indeed written by the man who had tried to rape her? She somehow doubted it. She hoped it had been put there by somebody trying to perpetrate a cruel joke. The writing was definitely feminine. She had once taken a correspondence course in handwriting analysis and displayed anything but roughness and masculinity. Perhaps he was one of the illiterate river people who always had two or three women around, having children by all of them. He probably had one of those whores write the note for him. So the bones of the encounter are there. There is, there is nothing there that is too awfully different from what Mary Heyer had recounted to John Keel. You know, this is not a made-up story. The names are changed, but the basics are there. There's also the story of Jimmy, a troubled boy who lived with a succession of foster parents. Jimmy had seen the Mothman through the window of his room, perched on a branch, and he was admonished by his foster parents for his overactive imagination and for, for being afraid and for being childish. This passage is strange and sexualized in ways that might be a bit troubling, particularly since Jimmy's age is kept fairly vague throughout this. 
So each night, before he finally fell asleep, Jimmy had to reassure himself that Mothman was indeed not there, perched upon the horizontal limb, and that only his familiar monsters haunted the darkness. Despite the absence of Mothman, Jimmy pulled the crazy quilt over his head and lay there half-dreaming. By this time, his parents had gone to bed, and from the next room he could hear the muffled but recognizable sounds of sex. They were somewhat like the sounds he had known made by the stranger with the graying hair which receded from a balding hairline. They had been whispered and reassuring, mixed with the smell of foot powder and cologne. A worn one-dollar bill had been the only evidence that, for him, had separated the real experience from fantasy. And he still had it, folded upon fold and hidden where it could never be discovered, in a remote corner of his dilapidated billfold. Jimmy liked going to sleep, once he could really get started, for the real world dovetailed into one that was unreal, and in that half-lit country he could feel warm forms engulf him, and a babble of voices which praised him, lifted him from one to the other as he ran a corridor of smiling, faceless people, swimming with him through pleasant vapors. Again, Jimmy felt he must reassure himself. He moved in bed toward the window, and with a hand trembling, half from the cold of the room, half from fear, jerked back the curtain with a swift, concise movement. There lay the scene, cold, austere, with the moving shadows of the high, fast-moving clouds. There were the familiar trees on the hilltop. There was the great oak tree with its horizontal limb. He fixed the limb in his stare, trying to reconstruct just how Mothman had stood, rigidly and motionless on it as it had moved up and down in the winter wind. He tried to envision just how tall the creature had been, how long it had stared at him. Without closing the curtain, Jimmy fell back from his sitting position and turned onto his stomach, kicking at the mattress with wildly flaying feet. Mothman! Please come back, Mothman! I love you, Mothman! This was one of the portions of the book that probably gives us more insight into Barker than into the Mothman. And it was one of the aspects of the book that came from Barker rather than from a witness. In that 1980 letter to Robert Schaefer, Barker explains that that parts of the book were autobiographical with, quote, the emotionally retarded boy whose relationship with his Mothman sighting was Freudian is a nephew, end quote. So a story of someone Barker knew someone who, you know, a young man who was having a difficult time, Barker takes him and inserts him into the Mothman story and gives Mothman a place in this boy's life and, and in this boy's psyche. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's not interesting because it's about Mothman. It's interesting because it's about people. Another creation that makes its way into the book is near the very end. It's the story of Frank Wentworth, whose wife Ida a stereotypically nagging wife, at least as Frank saw it, had left him. This is a lengthy excerpt, but I love it too much to, uh, to chop too much out of it. It had been on the Saturday night following the first Mothman sightings that Ida Wentworth had moved out, bag and baggage, taking the dog along, but leaving her husband, Frank, behind. Beyond initial puzzlement and dismay, Frank reasoned that her exit would, after all, be a great relief. Although Ida was a good cook and housekeeper, they had never got along well, and she had constantly nagged and shrieked at him. Practically nothing he ever did pleased her. After a week, however, he began to re-examine the situation. She had not yet returned, and despite Ida's shortcomings, he felt that he definitely missed her. Finally a month, and then six weeks passed without Ida's returning, and Frank adjusted himself to the notion that she probably never would come back. After a year of living alone, he had almost given up the idea altogether. After work, December 16, 1967, he decided to stop in town and have a few beers with some of his buddies before driving home. 
He felt satisfaction in being able to do this without worrying about being home at a given time. He would have some soup and a sandwich and thus avoid the task of fixing supper for himself. Frank remembered he had really entered the bar with the idea of having several beers and deliberately getting high, something he rarely did. Once he had finished half of the first bottle, however, the thought of getting drunk suddenly became repulsive to him. He said goodbye with the excuse that he had to see a friend at the service station, circled the block, and drove to the corner. He really only wanted to pick up a can of lighter fluid and go home. He recognized a young man checking the oil in his Chevy as the Scarberry Boy, one of the four people who had first reported seeing the so-called Mothman creature. He was about to approach Scarberry and ask him about the matter, but then he remembered that the boy had told people he no longer wanted to talk about it. He was ready to bring up some other conversational topic with the boy when he heard a loud rumble from behind. He turned and looked toward the bridge as Scarberry remarked, Hey, sounds like a real fender bender. Occasionally, rush hour traffic would pile up on the bridge and the trailer truck would lose its brakes on the steep incline descending from the middle of the span, smashing up several cars ahead. But the rumbling grew louder as suddenly as it had begun. He saw two people who were just driving up onto the bridge abandon their cars and run down off the incline. Then the entire towering structure, which had risen above Point Pleasant in a tower of rusty steel, slumped and during an unbelievable second or two, crumbled and disappeared. The rumbling stopped and a momentary silence ensued. As yet, Frank didn't realize or didn't quite believe what had occurred. The bridge, it went down, the station attendant yelled. Frank ran with a small group of people who happened to be in that section of town toward the river. He followed them up the approach, still standing like an abandoned ski launch platform. The two great bridge abutments stood like mute giants in the middle of the river as the muddy waters whirled around them. Frank turned, ran from the bridge, and forced his way through the crowd that seemed to have appeared from nowhere, pressing toward the scene of the tragedy. For an overpowering idea had come over him, and he fought and pushed his way through the people, hoping the one thought which obsessed him wasn't true. He knew that Ida had selected this very hour to return, and that one of her relatives in Middleport had been driving her home. What if she had been on the bridge? Would she be dead now? Would she be desperately trying to claw her way out of a sunken automobile deep in the blackness? Oh, God, he shouted. Don't let her die. Oh, God. Oh, God. He swung the car into the driveway. His garage was blocked by a taxi with Ohio plates. He was right. She had come back. He ran around the walk to his side of the building, and surely enough, his door was ajar. Ida! Ida, you don't know what happened. The bridge went down, but you're safe. You're here. As he gently pushed the bedroom door fully open, he was temporarily puzzled. For somebody, apparently Ida, was in the bed, though of somewhat larger bulk than she. A maddening thought crossed his mind as he remembered the taxi. Both Ida and the driver were in bed together. He would jerk off the covers and expose them. His anger grew. He would kill the man. He advanced slowly toward the bed, and when he saw an oscillating movement beneath the covers, he knew his suspicions were correct. Before he could reach the bed, the covers flew back and a huge grayish form rose from it. His anger and jealousy turned to fear as he backed toward the door and vainly searched for the light switch while his eyes remained riveted hypnotically on the thing before him. Red flashing eyes burned into his. Then with seeming confusion and a flapping and gurgling sound, the thing turned sidewise to the floor, flapped again, upset a lamp, and then righted itself unsteadily. He retreated to the living room, tripped on the edge of the rug and fell, as he was getting up, hoping to run and escape from the incomprehensible horror in the bedroom, it waddled through the door. He noted another facial feature besides the eyes. It had a long, sharp beak which slanted downward, almost corresponding to a nose. 
It fell again, as it had in the bedroom, again flailing its wings, this time hitting the TV and knocking it off the stand. The set crashed into the bookcase with a loud noise as the picture tube imploded. The great bird, that was as close as he could describe it to himself, again righted itself, leapt toward the large picture window, and with a crashing and splintering of glass disappeared. Oh, Lord Jesus, deliver me! The world's coming to an end! He kneeled, covered his face, and sobbed loudly. There was a banging on the wall and shrieking from next door. It was the landlady. And that was what she always did when there had been loud arguments in his apartment. This had usually halted their altercations, for Ida deeply respected the other woman. Suddenly she appeared at the door. Shame! You are no good! It's no wonder Ida could never put up with you. Look what you've done to your color TV! My God, you've broken the window! That just shows you, Frank Wentworth, what drinking can do to a man. He continued to hold his head in his hands and sob. My Lord, you've busted the plumbing, too! She ran past him into the bathroom. The latter remark shocked him to his senses, and then he noticed the trail of muddy water intermingled with bits of dirt which crossed the floor to the broken window. He ran into the bedroom where the floor showed the same signs. The bed was a mess. Filthy with mud, it looked as if gallons of water had been poured on it. Now, thanks to the correspondence between Schaefer and Barker, we know that there is a blend of fact and fiction in The Silver Bridge, with autobiographical elements strewn throughout. Here's the origin of the Frank Wentworth story. The man who's shocked at the bridge collapse and in his drunken stupor de-anthropomorphizes his missing wife, who henpecked him, into Mothman is constructed of whole cloth. And this entire subplot was suggested to me one evening by Mosley while we were drinking together. So these are just a few examples of the way that Barker not only described and expanded witness statements that we've seen in Keel's reports and in newspaper articles and in letters, but also we see Barker engaging in what we could possibly call Mothman fan fiction, something that is actually probably now a real thing. So this brings us back to the question or the topic that I very slightly brought up at the beginning. Was Barker writing fact or fiction? Was he, in Jason Calavito's words, lying for cash? I think the correspondence between Schaefer and Barker, it's helpful once more here. This is Schaefer writing to Barker on July 16th, 1980. This is after reading The Silver Bridge. Barker had sent him a copy. Um, and, uh, and, and Schaefer has this to say. It is obvious to me that the primary purpose of this book is not to promote UFO crack pottery. Although, when I read Keel, I feel that his primary reason is... I can't precisely state what your purpose is, but it is not to make us all believers in Mothman. As I read certain chapters, I said to myself, hell, that isn't deliberate crack pottery, that's literature. Perhaps not great literature, not exactly, but literature nonetheless. Which brings up the colossal question, just what is it that motivates Gray Barker? And what would be left of ufology without Barker, Mosley, and Palmer? Now those are questions that cry out for answers, never mind this saucer crap. After reading The Silver Bridge and some of your later work, I get the distinct impression that you do not yourself believe a word of this Mothman crap or any of that other stuff you've written. This is self-expression, not delusion for profit. And here's Barker's reply in the letter of July 19th that we've already heard from. Although I am thoroughly dedicated to promoting UFO crack pottery, I agree that this was a more neutral, though complex, look at the situation. 
There was no formula intended or involved, and the book probably was rather personal, and it may have expressed my vacillation between a great deal of belief and very little belief in all the UFO tradition. I also am puzzled by Keel, and though he may promote crack pottery out of a desire for three square meals, I often have the frightening impression that he may actually believe in a great deal of the stuff. Nothing wrong with a little bit of UFO crack pottery, in moderate doses, and clearly labeled so that children don't get their hands on it or something. Sometimes I think that people expect too much from books about the paranormal. True believers may want a book that reinforces the ideas they already hold very tightly. More skeptical readers may want hard data and documented facts and well-recorded consistent witness testimony. A smaller number of readers... And if I can flatter both you, the audience, and myself, I think listeners to this show might number among this group, a smaller number of readers want an intriguing story grounded in fact and well told. The mysteries of Mothman, Flying Saucers, and the Men in Black don't necessarily lend themselves to explanations that can be confined to words. And so we have the Silver Bridge, which throws a hefty dose of emotion and wonder and strangeness into the mix, alongside enough witness testimony that is more or less accurate, or at least consistent with what other recorders have recorded. Down the road, we will see John Keel's work on the Mothman also diverge a bit from what he initially recorded and what he may have initially thought or believed or surmised. If you've read The Silver Bridge, you know there are some fascinating parts and some fascinating stories in it that I did not get into here. This is partially to encourage you to read it for yourself. There are reprint editions that are out there and relatively affordable, but as always, I urge you to scour your local library and interlibrary loan service, or maybe even you know save up your pocket money and hop on eBay to see if you can get your hands on one of the original copies. There's no rational explanation for this, but I've always felt, somehow, that holding the same edition in my hands as the author might have done provides me with a deeper and more meaningful connection to the words within, and ultimately, to the saucer life. Next time, we will take a bit of a step sideways and look at Woodrow Derenberger in a little bit more detail, the contactee whose encounter's proximity to the Mothman event had the result of conflating the two things a bit, perhaps more than they should have been. Tune in next time for A Cold Day in West Virginia. Special thanks to Robert Schaefer, who scanned and posted a variety of correspondence between him and Gray Barker from the late 1970s and early 1980s. It was very valuable in establishing some of Barker's motivations in writing The Silver Bridge and some of his methods in doing so, or at least establishing what Barker claimed those motivations were in that letter to Schaefer. Barker is a tricky fella. A link to Schaefer's website is provided in the show notes. Uh, Check it out. He's got a lot of interesting writings. The Saucer Life, Encounter 703, was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. You can explore the archives at saucerlife.com, and you can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can subscribe to The Saucer Life, if you've not done already, everywhere you find podcasts. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.